Father, as we just heard your word read, we heard a mini-sermon in and of itself. Peter was quite clear that the church is to be growing, that each member needs to take it upon themselves to see to it that they are adding to their faith, they are supplementing their faith with godly virtues and disciplines so that you might be glorified, so that the false teachers, when they come in, they won't ravage the church. Lord, and so that we will at one day be able to enter your kingdom and have a warm welcome. That is what we desire. This morning, Father, as we consider our own lives and as we consider where we're at in our spiritual walks, where we're at in relation to you, I pray that we would be brutally honest about trend lines in our life to see, are we growing? Are we declining? And Lord, how can we grow even more? Father, these lives are short, as my sister Mary reminded me this morning. They will fly before our eyes. And so with the time that you've given us, Father, May we make the most of them, prioritize what is most important to you, and grow by the means you've prescribed. Lord, illuminate your word before us, and use me, a fallen man, to preach your infallible word. Do that great work amongst us this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Always love bringing you the word of God. It is powerful, and it is sharp as a two-edged sword. This morning, we'll be looking at diligent growth. So in the little interim between Ecclesiastes and Colossians, we looked at forgiveness, how God can forgive us, and how amazing it is that he does forgive us. Last week, we looked at biblical conversion and how essential it is to get conversion right and how many false converts there are in the church today. Um, It should be a great warning to us that we need to understand what Scripture says and to check ourselves to make sure that we are truly converted. Now, logically following from that progression, we want to say, okay, well, now that we're converted, now that we are believers who have been bought by the blood of Christ, how can we therefore grow? How can we not just say, okay, I'm converted and just to stay stagnant or decline in my faith? But now that Christ has filled me with his spirit, now that he's commissioned me to be a carrier of his good news, what is is his expectation of us? And how does he expect us to grow? That's what we'll look at this morning. The passage that you heard Kirk read is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11. through 11. And that is one of the best passages we see in the New Testament that outlines the pattern of growth we see. Now, verse 3, by itself, which says, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That verse in and of itself should be its own sermon. The verse following, verse 4, um, talking about how he has granted us these precious promise, uh, promises and that he has allowed us to become partakers of his divine nature and escape the corruption of the world, that as well should be its own sermon. But those two verses highlight the conversion process. These great promises God has given that he set upon the believer to, br- to draw them out of the corrupt world and bring them into his light, to, to, allow them to, to allow us to become partakers of the divine nature. So that means that we are now filled with the Spirit. So because those two verses highlight conversion, and that's what the sermon was on last week, this morning I wanted that because there's a therefore. We need to know what those verses say, but we'll primarily be looking at verses 5 through 11 and following, the, the section that deals most importantly with growth. We'll be alluding to those first two, but just so you set proper expectations for yourself, we don't want to bite off more than we can chew. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 11. And as we do that, to, to set the stage, I want you to think about your own life. Think about what are your ambitions? What are your ambitions? A lot of times, if you're in a job, in a secular context, an employer might ask you, what's your five-year plan? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And, you know, we might think, well, you know, I'd like to, you know, be a father one day, or I'd like to have this much saved up. I'd like to, you know, have these certifications under my belt. I'd like to be this type of person, and that's all well and good. But when considering, honestly, your own ambitions in your life, where does growth and godliness fit into that plan? When you think about where, where do you want to be in five, ten years, are you just considering maybe what new house you might want to move into, what sort of family you'd like to have, what changes you'd like to see in your own self? And, or are you considering spiritual matters? Are you saying, 
this is the type of Christian I want to be. These are the type of sins that I no longer want to have to fight with anymore and struggle with. I want to be beyond those. I want to be at this place. And I pray that that is your desire. As we'll see in this passage this morning, there's, there's nothing more important than we can, can be asking ourselves. The thing that we must be ambitious for is godliness, to be more like him. And we'll see the reasons why here in the passage this morning. So I want you to be thinking about your own life. Think about how Christian growth factors into your daily walk. And if you even have a, a plan for yourself or to strive daily to grow, or have you let your Christianity float along and have you become too comfortable where you think you're in a place where you're, you're okay, you're going to heaven one day, but you might be deceived and you might be declining. So this morning, it should be a charge to all of us to consider where am I at and how can I continue to grow? The big idea we're going to be looking at this morning and what Peter argues to the church and to us is that we must diligently grow in godliness through the knowledge of Christ for the knowledge of Christ. Now, I'm not just playing word games with you. He wants us to diligently grow in godliness through Christ, as we saw in verse 3, and for the knowledge of Christ to his glory. We'll be asking two big questions in order to see that big idea played out. First of all, what does the godly life look, look like? What are these qualities that we are expected to grow in? And secondly, the big question we'll be asking this morning is why must we increase in these qualities? Okay, we have them. Now, why should there be an upward trajectory in the degree to which we are living out and consistently practicing these qualities? The third point that you have in your bulletin isn't necessarily a new point. It's more of a conclusion or an addendum to the sermon. Now, how do I do this? very practically. So we'll touch on that at the very end. But this is essentially a two-point sermon this morning, looking at what are these qualities and why do we need to be increasing in them. You tracking along with me? Great. All right, so in order to see what these qualities are, they were read to you, and I'm actually thankful that Kirk read them in the NIV. I'm, I'll be preaching from the ESV this morning, but if you have another translation, these words, obviously, uh, in the original Greek, have been translated in English in various ways. And so if you have a little bit different word than me, that's actually okay, because it highlights a different facet of that Greek word. Um, because those words have a semantic range. They can mean multiple things, um, and they just give us a fuller, more broader context of what that is. So don't be thrown off if I say a word that's not in your Bible. But I will be preaching from the ESV. So what are these qualities we must grow in? So let's read verses 5 through 7, and we'll unpack them a little bit for us. Um, starting with verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith, add your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So these are our seven essential qualities. These are not exhaustive, Many of you know the fruit of the Spirit. There's some aspects of the fruit of the Spirit that aren't here. There's many other things we can look at in the life of Christ that are not here. But these are important. These are essential. And these are the qualities that um, Peter was addressing the, to the church. And so they should be important for us as well. They're a good litmus test. Notice in verse 5, he says, Make every effort to supplement your faith with these things. Now, make every effort means that there should be a, a haste to them, that we shouldn't delay, that we should strive and work hard and sweat and sacrifice to see these things come about in our lives. Now he says, add to or supplement your faith with these things. What that doesn't mean is that these things are required along with faith to become saved. We know that salvation is by, by grace alone, through faith alone, through, in Christ alone. Um, so it's faith that saves us, and these virtues we often say are a outworking of your faith or they should naturally flow from faith. And that is true, but what Peter is getting at this morning is that the natural progression of these things from faith isn't just like, oh, it automatically happens. He's saying you have to work at these attributes. You have faith in Christ, that's wonderful, that's great, but godliness and self-control and steadfastness and love you don't just let go and let God and those things will just come to you and they'll just be like, okay, well, I've just got to sit and my faith will just generate these things. But no, he's saying make every effort to bring these about in your life, to add them to your faith. And so yes, they flow from it, but your effort and your work, it needs to be put in 
obviously through the power of the Spirit to bring out these godly virtues in your life. So if we understand that they are to supplement faith, um, they're not preconditions for salvation, um, then we can start to look at them individually and, make, and they'll be intelligible to us. Now before I jump in, I want to just quickly also preface this by saying we have seven of these virtues that, or qualities that, that are added on to faith. Now the, what the literary device he's using by saying one and saying it again and then repeating it with another, a lot of times that's called a staircase. But what isn't happening here is he's not saying that in order to um, have brotherly affection, it has to follow from godliness. So there's not a, a, so the order isn't as important. There is some significance that he ends it with love, seeing the, the preeminence of love in Scripture, and Paul very clearly saying that that um, is the most important thing that we should have. So it, ending with love is appropriate, but in between here, there's no necessary significance to this order. It's just a literary device he's using. So if we're on the same page there, let's, let's get into it. And let's look and examine our own lives in light of these godly qualities. So first, um, to supplement your faith with virtue. Now, in the NIV, it says goodness. Um, the word is also the same word in verse 3 that we saw that he's calling us to his own glory and excellence. That word excellence is a moral excellence. And so, so if you're a, vir- a virtuous person, if you're filled with good no- goodness, that means you are striving for moral excellence in your life. Now, in the Greek philosophical context, virtues were everything. Aristotle and, and Plato were really concerned with the virtues, but they were drawing them from just observation. You know, what are good things that we think are pragma- pragmatically good for a good human life? Whereas we draw them from Scripture. You know, if we're not drawing them from Scripture, there's no reason why any of these things need to be in your life. If you are just a product of evolution and you're just stardust bumping into other stardust, then you don't need to be any of these things. You can do and be whatever you want. But because our foundation is God and he's commanded us to be this way, because it's a reflection of his character, we are commanded to live in this way. And so if you know polite people who are atheists, you can tell them that um, your atheism is contradictory to your style of life right now because you have no foundation for any virtuousness in your life. So we draw these from scripture. Um, so without telling, telling you everything there, there is to know about virtue, um, a few things that are distinctive about Christian virtue. James 1.27 says we are to remain unstained from the world. So ask yourself, what, what are you watching? What are you exposing yourself to? Um, what are you very diligent about, um, about where you go, where your eyes look? Being a virtuous person, being full of moral excellence, means that you're trying to keep yourself pure and holy because of um, the goodness of God, because you want to honor him. But it's not only keeping yourself unstained, but being, a, having, being morally excellent means also um, loving and blessing others as well. So when you're offended, do you show grace? That would be a, a sign of increasing in virtue or goodness in your life. So moving forward... From virtue, we also have to be growing in knowledge. Now, knowledge was also something very common in their Greek context. And what he's doing here is he's taking words that were buzzwords to them, and he's filling them with Christian meaning. Um, so he's, he's contextualizing the gospel to them in a way. Um, so growing in knowledge, it's not clear here whether this knowledge is a personal, I know you, I have an intimate relationship with you, or this knowledge is a I know about the difference between right and wrong. It's not clear here um, what he's meaning, but I think both of them are very relevant, that we should be growing in both, and intimacy with God himself, that I truly know God on a personal level. And each of us should be striving to grow in knowledge from right and wrong. As the verse Jeremy read from Hebrews 5 says, that we should be desiring to grow in discernment, constantly training ourselves to, to tell what's right from wrong. And if you've lived in this world for any matter of of time, you know that there's a lot of thorny situations out there, a lot of ethical um, dilemmas and a lot of things in people's lives that it's not always clear what is right and wrong. But if we are growing in knowledge, then we will be able to discern those things. Now, let's say you're not someone who's a reader. Say you you didn't grow up in in pursuing the the academic realms um, as much as someone else might have. Well, you are still called to grow in knowledge 
Hosea 4, 6 says that my people perish for lack of knowledge. So it's not just the pastors or, or some people who went to college that are expected to learn and progress, but each person should say, how am I growing in my knowledge of scripture first and foremost, and do I have a hunger to know more so that I can love God more? You should be asking yourself that. And sadly, we live in a TV microwave culture that basically has trained our brains to only want what's immediate and now and what will feed us so that we don't have to think. A lot of us, we don't read books anymore, and that's a very sad thing. So ask yourself, are you pursuing knowledge? If you haven't in a long time, set a goal to read a new book this year. Set a goal to, to meditate and memorize scripture that you haven't before. Use your mind to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Grow in knowledge. Next on the list, self-control. Now, this is essential for fighting temptation in the Christian life. To have control over your, yourself and your desires and your affections that is a mark of, of what someone, of what happens when, when the Spirit indwells a believer, is that you no longer just say, what is right in my own eyes and what feels good, most good right now to me, but you say, how will I act and how will I temper my emotions and my cravings and desires based on what is true and what will be best for me, even if that's not what I want in this moment. So this can be something as silly and as, as mundane as not binge watching a show and watching one episode after the other or binge or binging on food whenever you realize that temperances should be in order so it can be as as you know simple as that but you know that that has very spiritual ramifications to it or self-control can be as life and death as um i I have lust and i have these passions am i going to follow them or am i going to check my heart and check my emotions on the truth of god's word and control myself, not out of my own self-determination and will, but drawing on the power of God and being influenced by his word. I pray you are desiring to grow in self-control. Next, steadfastness. So other translations say endurance. Literally, it means to bear under something. So you need to be steadfast in order to handle the, the, the trials that you'll go through in the Christian life. Now, the cost of following Jesus is very, very expensive. He says, for those of you who would come after me, pick up your cross and follow me. It means you're willing to die for his sake. And before you die, there's going to be many trials. They hated him. Don't be surprised when they hate you as well. Steadfastness, endurance, bearing under trials is something that's essential. If Satan can't throw you off in the moment, then he's going to take the long-term strategy with you, and he's just going to try to wear you down. So it may not be something that causes you to explode today, but if you're not growing in steadfastness, then, you know, months might go by, and you might cause something to just take root and and just discourage you or throw you off. This is so essential for us to say, okay, am I going to be worn down by the trials in my life? Because there are always going to be hardships and trials in your life. Am I going to allow them to wear me down? Or am I going to see God's presence and his sovereignty in them? And am I going to use them as weights to train with so that I get stronger? So that I can use these trials and transform them into opportunities to glorify God rather than just put me into a tailspin of discouragement. Are you growing in steadfastness? Next, godliness. So this is another... um, another term that encompasses a lot of these other virtues. But godliness means, are you striving to reflect the character of God? In all of the communicable attributes you know of God, his, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his peace, his patience, are those things you are striving for? Do you hate evil? Do you exude peace and patience in the light of irritable people? Do you try to view the world as God sees it? Do you have a Christian worldview that is shaped by Scripture, and do you approach things like politics and like sports and relationships in the family and food and, and all the enjoyment and all the enjoyments we have in life? Or do you approach those things looking through the lenses of Scripture and trying to see them how God might see them? Trying to see people how God sees people and drawing near to those who need help rather than cloistering off and saying, how can I preserve myself? Are you growing in godliness? Next, leading in to the next one is brotherly affection. 
I like the word affection here. We don't use that word often, but your affections are, are your desires. It's what you, what you want in life. It's what you, you're hungering for. Do you, and the word here in the Greek is the same word where we get Philadelphia, which is brotherly love. So do you have a true love for brothers? Or you could even say sisters here as well. Now what is in Peter's mind when he's writing this is brothers and sisters in the church. And so when you think about and when you look at the directory in the church and when you're here and you look, at, look around at people, do you have an affection for people? Is your heart warmed by seeing people? Or do you, are you quick to look around and see faults in everyone and see their, how they, they don't match up to you or match up to Christ? And are you quick to be judgmental and say, man, the, you know, these, this person's falling short in this way? Or are you quick to say, you know, I love this person. This person's been bought by the blood of Christ. And like C.S. Lewis says, if I were to see them in their glorified state, I might be tempted to worship them. And yet right now, I want to have a brotherly affection for them, even when they're annoying, even when they're hard to be around. Um, because Christ set his affection on me when I had nothing to offer him, I should have a brotherly affection for my brothers, brothers and sisters in church. I think if we keep, cultivate that in this church, then that will guard against things like sins that creep in, that, that cause church splits and fractions um, and cliques and things like that. We should desire have, to have an affection for the brethren. And lastly, and I think most importantly, are we growing in love? Now this word is agape, one that many of you are familiar with. We see this distinctive quality most clearly in the life of Christ and the work he did on the cross, where he gave up of, of his life and he took the wrath of God. He took an, an infinite punishment. He sacrificed himself for us. While we were sinners, he died for us. He showed us the perfect agape love. And so how is that working itself out in your life? What sacrifices are you making for the betterment of those around you? Do you want what's best for people so that they can grow in godliness? Or are you loving in a way that is just enabling or equipping people or giving them what they want in the moment? So I think part of love has to be the definition of truth wrapped into it. Because we're not truly loving people if we are giving them things, if we're treating them in such a way, or if we're just being nice and allowing sin or unfoolish patterns to go unchecked. So are you being sacrificial first and foremost, and are you loving with, in accordance with truth? Ask yourself, are you growing in these things? Now, none of these should be immediate. Some of them might be immediate yes or no's for you. Some of them will, you'll be, the Spirit will bring to mind immediate ways you have not been growing or the ways you have. But some of these, you needed to go back and take time, chew on them, meditate on them. And in the email I sent out, maybe even ask those closest to you, hey, have you seen me growing in these ways? Um, because all of these are a gradient. All of these are, you know, if you're a believer, all of these must be present in your life if you're a truly Christian. They must be present. The question is not whether they're present or not. If you're a believer, they should be. The question is, how are they increasing in your life? That is what we are concerned with here. As we looked at, they're all interrelated in a lot of ways. So in some, some of these things, you might be, have less of a degree. But as you can see, if you're growing in godliness... In that same way, you will naturally have to be growing in virtue, goodness, and love as well. So don't try to break these things down so neatly at the same time. We can define them all. They're distinct, and yet they're all interrelated. So this is a picture of how we should be growing in godliness. Ultimately, looking to Christ is our consummate example of how these things are lived out in this fallen world. Okay, so are you still tracking with me? Good, okay. Now that you have a, a base of what these qualities are that we should be growing in. The second question that we need to be asking and what Peter wants us to be thinking about is why should we be increasing in them? Why is it so important? If you listened when we were reading through the passage, you'll notice words like effort, increasing, diligent, practice. And if you read to the end of 2 Peter, the very last verse is a command to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're commanded to grow. It is not an option. So Peter is, is all, all along saying, go, go, be motivated. Don't stand still. Why was he so concerned with this? Well, in this time, and if you read in, in chapter 2 of this book, you'll see false teachers were creeping into the church. 
that denied that there would be a judgment one day. They were telling the church, you're not going to have to be accountable to Christ. That, that, that day of judgment won't really come. And by taking that day of judgment out, essentially that opened them up to, to practice just whatever they felt like. So we saw them just making much of these believers and, and practicing licentiousness and all sorts of wicked sins. And without the judgment of Christ, they, they validated them uh, themselves in doing so. And so we see that um, in response to these false teachers, Peter says, no, there will be a judgment to come. That it matters where you end up, as we see in verse 11. It matters that you are greeted with a warm welcome into heaven one day. There will be a judgment, and therefore we must be growing. So when we ask, why, why should we be increasing in these qualities? <clears throat> we see a few reasons here. We see first, in verse 8, that he doesn't want us to be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. As we see in verse 5, it says, For this very reason, supplement your faith with these virtues or, or these qualities. So we have to look at what is that reason. And then finally, we'll say we need to make our calling and election sure, and we need to make sure that we are prepared for heaven, that we have a sense of assurance and guarantee that one day we will be warmly welcomed into heaven. We are given these three reasons, and we'll spend the remainder of the time unpacking those together. So if you remember, the big idea is that we are to diligently grow in godliness through the knowledge of Christ. That means that you are not just growing in these things on your own power and your own strength and for the knowledge of Christ. That you're not just saying, oh, I want to be the best version of me for me so that people can look at me and people can say, oh, how, how godly and virtuous of a person. But you're doing it through his strength and power and you're doing it because you want to increase in your knowledge of Christ for his glory. That is why we should be striving. It ultimately has to be founded and rooted and our aim has to be knowing Christ. That is our aim. So if that is true, then how are we protected from becoming ineffective? Look at verse 8 with me. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ means seeing him clearly and trusting him surely. It means seeing him clearly and trusting him surely with everything in your life. It means having a relationship with him. It means knowing him, not just for what he can give you, but seeing him as beautiful and drawing near to him. If you have been bought with a price, if you are truly converted, then you know Christ. And your priority in life should be growing to know him more and more. I don't have to prod or pry or, or push a, a, a young man to want to have to love or know his young wife more. That is a natural thing. There's a built-in love that they have for one another. The same way that a lot of times we see new Christians kind of get on fire and they have this passion and zeal about them to, to live out God's commands radically and even share their faith um, to those who, who they don't know. And, so, and, and sometimes that sadly dies down as time goes on. But we, if we have been bought with, a such, uh, with such a price, we should have a desire to know the Savior more. If these qualities aren't growing, the things we just looked at, if those qualities are not growing in you, that means you don't truly know him. It means you don't truly know him. You, you can't. Because if you knew him, then that knowledge would, would, would be rooted in faith, and that faith would, would naturally produce all of those qualities we just mentioned. You could say you know him, but if those qualities are not increasing, if you're not increasing in love, then your knowledge of him might be just purely scholastic. And so you'd be puffing yourselves up, and you'd be that, you could maybe argue predestination and all the, um, the fine, um, you, know, you know, all the finer points of it, but ultimately, you wouldn't be knowing Christ more. You would just be puffing yourselves up and, and displaying pride rather than true knowledge of Christ. On the opposite side of that spectrum, if none of these qualities are increasing in you and you say you know him, then if, they're not, if, if you're not increasing, let's say, in knowledge, then you're just remaining a babe. 
You're just saying, okay, well, it's good enough for me that I'm getting into heaven now, but I don't, I'm not truly concerned about making the most of my life now because that's going to take work, and it's more comfortable to sit and stay where I'm at. And so we don't want to fall into either of those ditches. We don't want to be the, the, the person who claims to know him and knows him intellectually but doesn't truly know him intimately. And we don't want to be the person who, who majors on the feelings and say, oh, well, I know the Savior because of this exper- experience I had, but you're just, you're just content with that, and you're inner, ineffective in your knowledge. So if these qualities are not increasing, then you truly will be unfruitful. You'll be like that tree that Jesus cursed. He went and he saw it, um, and it, it wasn't producing fruit, and so he cursed it. Um, it might mean that you never knew him in the first place. So we need to be very careful that we are making every effort to supplement our faith with these virtues. We don't want to be a church that's just spinning our tires. We don't want to just be doing this thing and having no impact on ourselves or on the neighborhood around us. Why waste our time and money? We don't want to be unfruitful or ineffective. Because the most important thing in this world is God's kingdom. And he has called us to to go and be heralds of his good news so that his kingdom might be established in this world and so that more people might be brought into that eternal kingdom. If that is truly most important, then being ineffective and unfruitful, unfruitful will not be an option for you. It will not. You should strive to know the Savior more. And if these are are increasing, then it will aid in your knowledge of him. If you are growing in godliness, then you will be able to see Christ more clearly. And I I know in in the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a correlation between saying no to the wicked things of this world for choosing purity and having a clear sight of who God is. And whenever we're choosing worldly things and and our eyes are corrupted with sin, our our vision of God gets clouded. And when we read scripture, it just starts to look dull dull to us. So we need to be careful that we do not grow ineffective. So that's the first reason why we should be growing. Next, we should be growing in all these attributes because it honors the gift giver. If you'll look with me at verse 5 here in this passage. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and and then the list goes on. So if it says, for this very reason, what that's telling us is whatever was before that is the reason why we must be doing that. So the verse right after it, verse 8, tells us that we don't want to be fruitless, but before that list of attributes, it says, for this reason, do these things. And so what what are those reasons? Well, we read verses 3 and 4, but let's quickly skim them again. Let's quickly look at them. What reasons do we have here in verses 3 and 4 to grow in godliness? Well, look at what he has given us. Look how gracious God has been. It says that he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he's given you all things. He's not only given you all things, but then he's it says he's called you to his own glory and excellence. And that call, as we saw last week, is an effectual call. That means he's not just saying, please come and um, please be saved. But he's saying, no, I'm going to put my call upon you and you will come to me. So he's, he's saved you. He's, he's truly called you to himself. He's given you very precious and great promises that were so costly, it took the lifeblood of his son to be able to promise that he would never leave you nor forsake you, that one day you would have an inheritance in heaven, and that he's working all things together for your good. All of these great promises, he was willing to give up his son so that you might have them. How great a gift giver. And then if we just finish off here, not only that, but he's delivered you from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Yes, the corruption is out there, but it's also in here as well. Each one of us added to that corruption, and each one of us were born in sin, and, and we were, it was our sinful desires that were corrupting our own lives. Essentially, he protects us from self-destruction. So he saves us, protects us from ourselves, grants us these promises, and then in verse 5, as we read, for this reason, supplement your faith with these things. So what we see here is that we should be growing all these attributes 
because it rightfully honors the gift giver. The picture I see here of the person who doesn't want to grow is like a disobedient teenager. Maybe you were one of these one day. Maybe you know a disobedient teenager. Someone who their parents had spent years and countless hours taking care of them, feeding them, working hard at their jobs to put food on the table, um, teaching them right from wrong, even bringing them to church oftentimes, um, loving them. You can't even put a price on the amount of time and effort and gifts that a parent has given a child. And yet, sadly, we see sometimes teenagers hit the stage. It's not just teenagers. It can happen much earlier, and it can happen later in life. But I'm just, for the illustration, focusing on this, this age. Sometimes we see rebellious teenagers. How wicked, how, how prideful is it to say, oh, I'm going to rebel against you, mom and dad. You don't truly love me. You haven't really given me that much. I know better. That is the, the height of hubris of arrogance for a teenager to push off his parents and to say, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to rebel against you. Saints, we are no different when we do not grow in these attributes. We are no different. All of the time and and energy and food and clothing that a parent gives a child, those pale in comparison to the infinite and amazing gifts we see God giving us to convert us. We see in verses 3 and 4, these precious and very great promises are much more costly than those late nights you had to stay up with your infant. These are costly gifts that God has given. And how dare us not desire to grow and add to our faith these godly virtues. So we must grow in these things because it will give great honor and great glory to the gift giver if we actually live in response to him. That we say, filled with gratitude, we say, I can do no other. I must grow in these things because my heart has been captured and it is fitting for me to live in line with the purpose for which you created me. So then if we see that we don't do this, we, oftentimes we don't grow in proportion to the gift that he's given us. If, we, if we're not growing, if, we, if there are seasons that we feel like we're plateauing or declining, and then we've all experienced them, then we have to ask, ask ourselves, why is this the case? Why don't we grow as rapidly as we must? Why do we get complacent? The answer for us is in verse 9. Look with me at verse 9. It says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This nearsightedness that leads to blindness, this is a willful nearsightedness. Another way to translate the the word that the, the Greek word behind nearsighted is a closing of your eyes. So what happens here is that we don't grow because we willingly forget the good work God did to cleanse us from our former sins. Being nearsighted, as you know, some of you have glasses, some of you are nearsighted, means that um, you can't see things far away. You can't see the sign, the exit on the highway, but you can see things up close. What this is saying is that we don't grow in these qualities is because we are so nearsighted to the point where we're blind, where we can't even see up close anymore. How does this happen practically for each of us? Well, what happens is that we get so wrapped up and so caught up in the problems and passions of our day-to-day, of all the fires that come, and all of the shiny things that, that try to entice us, that we no longer see far away that we are so nearsighted that we can't look back by faith and see the great work that the Savior purchased, did for us on the cross to purchase us and cleanse us from our sins. We forget that. We are, are slave to the urgent, and we can only see the things right in front of us. Rather than being filled with thanksgiving, we start to see all the problems, and we start to see, okay, how can I find a quick solution? How can I get out from this problem? We set the mind on the present, and we forget why we're even here. 
We not only forget that Christ has cleansed us, but we forget why we are here. We start to make up our own meaning. We start to think, well, if I can reach this level, I will be happy. Or if I can just make this situation or this circumstance different in my life, I will be happy or my life will have meaning. And we become nearsighted. We forget what is most important. We forget that God himself has cleansed us. So this doesn't happen overnight most of the time. There's a slow progression, and it's subtle. Oftentimes, when you're saved, it goes, you start to grow, and there might be seasons of growth, but then that growth turns into distraction. Maybe you get sick for a period of time. Maybe some intense suffering comes into your life. Maybe Satan truly has worn you down, and you're not being steadfast anymore, and you're distracted. And then slowly that distraction turns into nearsighted stagnation. And that nearsighted stagnation eventually turns into a blinded decline. A blinded decline is where we end up. No, it's, as we've said here from the pulpit before, and as we know from scripture, is that there's no such thing as truly plateauing or just pure stagnation, is that if you're not growing closer to Christ, that you are moving away from him. You are willfully choosing to close your eyes to become nearsighted. We see throughout scripture that, um, that God calls his people to remember him, to recall the Exodus account, to recall God's goodness, to pass that good news to the very, to, along to the generations so they might remember and know. This morning, we are called to remember as well. Have you forgotten how much he did to cleanse you? Are you, for, do you have you forgotten what your life was what, like in the, the sinful desires and the corruption that was in you before he rescued you? I pray not, brothers and sisters. The remedy for this nearsightedness, the remedy is the gospel. It's remembering his cleansing work on the cross. Now, some of you this morning, you need to remember because you're a believer, these qualities are present in your life, and you are, you've grown nearsighted. Others of you are growing, but you want to be growing at a much more rapid pace. The, 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 the pace at which you're growing in your faith isn't proportional to the amazing gift that he's given you in verses 3 and 4. And that's not honoring either. And then most, most terrifyingly, the last group is maybe some of you are not Christians at all. And if these qualities are not present and you don't see growth in your life, if you don't have a desire to, to increase in these ways, it might mean that you, you never saw in the beginning that you've been blind all along. For all three of these types of people, the remedy is the same. It's remembering the gospel. It's honestly evaluating where we're at, and it's confessing that we have not striven to, to grow. We have not made every effort to supplement our faith. Can you honestly say that you are making every effort? I know I can't. That, that, that um, charge is much too lofty. And so we are guilty of that. We are guilty of turning away from him and being distracted by the things right in front of us. So what is this gospel that can open our eyes and turn us around? The good news is that Christ came into the world, that he knew that we were created for the purpose of growing in these qualities. He knew that we are not. He knew that rather than doing them through his power, for his glory, we do them through our own strength, for our own glory. We've completely inverted this entire paradigm. And so rather than judging us, which would have been fitting, he instead came with compassion. And he said, no, I will perfectly live out these things because you can't. I will perfectly live this virtuous life, living out all these godly qualities. And then I will die on a cross for you. I will cleanse you, but that cleansing is going to be expensive. It's going to cost my own life. And the Savior came, and he did that, and he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he took the lashings, and he took the beatings, and and most horrifically, he took the wrath of God on the cross for your stagnation, for your laziness, for your lack of growth, and for your blindness. He did that for you so that you could be cleansed, so that you could be washed, so that you could be filled with the love of God, so that God, who was once your enemy, could be your friend, so that you might become a partaker of his divine nature. 
and so that you might be able to grow and most glorify him. So, although we once rebelled and did what was right in our own eyes, when we see what he's cleansed us from, then we will desire to engage in his cosmic work. Now, this cosmic work is more important than you could ever imagine. You think the president's job's important? You think a police officer's job's important? They are. But the job he's given to you as a Christian is infinitely more important. You hold within you the life-saving power of the gospel. That is within you, brothers and sisters. You have the power of the word of God to be able to proclaim it and, and share it and tell it to others so that people who are dead and destined to weep and, gnash, and have their uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity in hell come and, and have life breathed into them to spend eternity with him. We're talking about matters of life and death, brothers and sisters. We're not talking about pay raises and layoffs. We're not talking about championships and, and losses. We're not talking about stock markets rising and falling. Those things happen, and we, and we pay attention to them. But what is most important are the cosmic things, the things that God has said are most important, our relationship with him. And so you should be engaged in that cosmic work if you see how much he's cleansed you. Yes, it is cosmic and it is important, but then oftentimes it'll look mundane. This growth won't happen going to a single conference. This growth won't happen coming to a single church service. It won't be by having some mystical experience at the ocean side or the mountaintop. But this growth will come from a long obedience, as Eugene Peterson says, in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. It'll be the daily faithfulness in and out. It'll be seeing a need and your flesh saying, I really need to get somewhere right now, but then your, your conscience and the Spirit telling you, no, you need to help that person, and listening and obeying to the Spirit. It'll be um, thinking of others more than yourself, saying, oh, wow, I have been cl cleansed, I have been washed, and the Savior has done such a marvelous work in my life. Let me help along, disciple these other believers who need more cleansing as well. Let me help them grow in these attributes as well so that they might bring, bring more glo glory to God. You will do these things and you will engage them if you can see with clarity what he's cleansed you from. So we don't just stay here. We see that we've been cleansed. We see, we see that um, we've been forgiven. Now, the final question we have to ask is, in, in, in the way we answer why does he want us to grow in these attributes, we see in the last verses, in verses 10 and 11, it's to confirm our calling and to give us a guarantee of a rich welcome into heaven. Let's look at these final verses. Read along with me in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the danger is thinking that you have these qualities, thinking that they're increasing, but you not truly having them because God has, is doing them in you. That you're not supplementing your faith because the faith isn't existent in the first place. That's the danger here. And so Peter is concerned that the church, there's those in the church that might be off, and we should all be concerned about that as well. We should all be saying, I want a sense of assurance that I am truly saved. And we looked at that in detail last week, and I'm thankful for that. But and a reason why these things should be not just present, but increasing in your life, is that if they are, then it proves, it shows, it's, it's very strong evidence to demonstrate that you truly have been called, that you have been chosen, that you are one of his. As we looked at already, that if you know Christ, that these things, they, they, they have to be present and they have to be increasing. That is part of, it, what it means, part of what it means to be a Christian. And so, if you want to be sure of one thing in this life, the thing you should be most certain of is your salvation. So, a motivator to, to say, am I growing in these attributes, in virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, godliness? You should strive for them so that you can say, I know where I'm going when I die. 
I know that I have a right relationship with God and that he's actually renewing me and I'm growing, and this isn't just the type, I'm not just the type of person who is that seed that got watered and grew up a little bit and got choked out by the weeds and cares of this world. I don't want to be that false convert, but I want to be one who's steadfast, who perseveres to the end so that I can be sure that he has truly saved me. And then if we, if we strive for that assurance, what that will lead to is a rich welcome into the kingdom of Christ our Savior. Now, Peter lays out this mini-sermon at the beginning of his letter because he wants to deliver the full impact, the strongest punch he can give them so that whenever he addresses other issues like false teachers and whether Christ will come again or not, he's already given them this picture that they should be longing for, that anyone who's a true Christian should strive for and should say, man, I want that as well. This picture that you will be richly welcomed, as the NIV says, into the kingdom of Christ. The presence of Christ, brothers and sisters, that is our home. That is where you should want to be. You should want a rich welcome into his presence. Now, all of us have a sense of home if you were ever, let's say, gone away for a camping trip for a week or you were on vacation for a while, or let's say you, you even went off to college, you know or you moved away, you can identify with that nostalgic sense of wanting to go home. We, the, the word home has such a, a rich um, meaning for all of us, and God has built that into us. And it is very nostalgic. The country music industry, for example, has made millions off of this idea of home, of, of going home, of being comfortable there, because that's where security is, that's where friends are, that's where we're fed. We have this idea, that's where, that's where things are familiar. We all have this understanding of home. Now, I want you to ask yourself, if you're a Christian, is Christ your home? Do you have just these nostalgic feelings of wanting to be where you're supposed to be, which is a physical location, or Above that, do you have this, this heart, this yearning that you long to be with your Savior? That you, you really, truly want to see him and you want a warm welcome into his presence? Have any of you ever had a warm welcome home? There's, there's few things that are better in, in life. I know that sometimes when I come home, my girls, they, they give me a warm welcome. They'll run to me. They'll, they'll try to climb up me. Um, Yasmin will give me a hug and the girls will try to hug my legs at the same time and so how great a thing is it to have a rich warm welcome home many of you have probably experienced something similar in your life and so Peter here is saying that we should be longing even more so to be in the presence of Christ the Savior now if we long for that if we desire to not just go to heaven to make sure that we're not going to hell then, then that, we've got it all wrong. Or if we just want to go to heaven where um, we are going to get everything we want, then we have it all wrong as well. We should be wanting to go to heaven because we should want that knowledge of Christ that we talked about is the, the reason that's through the knowledge of him that we should be growing, and it's for the knowledge of him in his glory that we should be growing. That knowledge is actualized. It's, it's, it's completed, and it will be ever-increasing in heaven. And so we should want to know God now, to know him with an intimacy and long for that, to, that faith to, be, to turn to sight when we get to heaven, to know him more fully, to be in his presence, to have him physically come up and speak to us. What an amazing thing. I pray that you long for that as well. And in those days when you don't feel like growing in steadfastness, when it's easier to give in to, to discouragement, in those days when you say it's easier to, to be fed something or to, to watch TV than it is to grow in knowledge right now? Think about when you are tempted to, to strive to grow in these virtues, be motivated by wanting to, to go to your true home, to go to be, to sit alongside your Savior and say, you know what, I want to know him now. I want to, to know him so that when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be surprised. So that in this moment, I can get a taste of heaven. We should, we should long for that. And that is the final reason we see here that we should have a desire to be increasing in these qualities. So just, just to, to recap, we shouldn't want to be ineffective or unfruitful. If we, if we are, then what are we doing? 
we should have a desire to honor the gift giver. If he's given us everything for life and godliness, how dare we not grow in all of these godly qualities? And lastly, we should want to confirm our calling heavenward. We should want to go to be with our Savior. All of growing in the, all of these attributes will aid to them. And, and if we have these things in mind, then it'll have a kind of a symbiotic relationship. If we, if we grow in the attributes, we'll want to know Christ. And if you say, I want to draw nearer to Christ, then that will fuel and motivate your desire to grow in all these godly attributes. And just like two plates come together to, to form a mountain range, those things will push together and you will grow as a Christian. <laughs> you, will, you will continue to grow as those two things interact and work together. So just to close out the sermon, a few just very practical tips. Say, how do I grow? Maybe, yes, that sounds great, Kurt. Um, I, I want to know these things, but how practically do I grow when, when this hits the ground? Oftentimes, at this point, the spiritual disciplines are recommended, and I recommend them to you. Donald, Donald Whitney's book on the spiritual disciplines is excellent. But I want to remind us here, sisters and brothers, that those are a means to an end. That reading your Bible, prayer, fasting, journaling, meditating, all those things are a means to knowing Christ. And I know for me, I've been tempted and guilty of sometimes making those things an end and end in of themselves. But whenever your goal is to know Christ, then those things get a richness to them and an importance. And you'll have a desire to prioritize them rather than, oh, I better check off a box. So how do you grow? It's by seeing him, seeing his beauty, seeing his attributes and wanting to be like him. And then, then you'll want to do the things in scripture that are prescribed to know him more. It's actively remembering that you've been cleansed. So do you listen to yourself or do you preach to yourself? Are you rem reminding yourself of the gospel through singing hymns, through reciting verses, through meditating on the gospel and how much he's, he's done to save you. The fact that you should be in hell right now and the fact that you're not is an amazing blessing, that you should be overflowing with gratitude this very moment as you're sitting in this seat. Do those gospel realities work their way into every moment of your life? Meditating on what he's cleansed you from. And this will naturally entail, saints, this will naturally entail killing sin and pulling weeds. One of the fastest things to undercut growth and godliness is, is, the thing, is the sins that creep in and that distract us, that allow us to become nearsighted, that tempt us to want to be virtuous because of our own pride and want, want to be virtuous on our own strength and power. It's those sins that tempt us that we must identify and put to death. Last but not least, when we talk about knowing Christ, we need to all grow this assumes that if you're a believer, you know him already. But in growing in them, what we're talking about is learning. That's how we grow in knowledge is learning. And so another way to put that is discipleship. We can define discipleship as, as transformational learning. In discipleship, I'm not just talking about one-on-one -on -one groups, small groups, this and that. I'm talking about placing yourself underneath the word of God in every arena of your life. So discipleship should be what you are exposing yourself to and what you desire. And as you are growing as a disciple, you will be conformed to the image of Christ, Lord willing. So my prayer for us saints isn't just so that you'll grow so that we can be the best church on the block or so that we can pat ourselves on the back. But brothers and sisters, I want you to be the best reflection of God possible. I want you to bring God the most glory you can possible. I want each of you to have that sense of assurance that you will one day be called heavenward, that one day you will have a rich entrance into, into the kingdom of God. Right now, as your under-shepherd, um, I'm going to strive to lead you and feed you with the word of God, but I can't wait till one day I get to pass you off to the true over-shepherd, because he is your master and he's your king, and he is truly the lover of your soul. Let's pray to him this, mean, this morning. God, we thank you. We thank you so much for the great work you did on the cross. We thank you for giving your own life so that we might be brought out of the corruption that is in the world, brought on by our own sinful desires. And we thank you, Lord, that you haven't placed this um, unattainable standard ahead of us of godliness. 
that, we haven't, that we're not left to ourselves to grow and to be these people we want to be, but that you have granted us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Therefore, we have an infinite power source to tap into. I pray that each one of us would make every effort to supplement our faith with those virtues, that we would indeed act upon the great power that you've endowed us with, God, that we would grow into um, the image of Christ, that we would truly be sanctified, set apart from this world, that we might know you more, and through knowing you more, glorify you better with our lives. Bless us this morning, and Father, I pray that this would be a, a true ambition for each one of us. As we look out five, ten years in our lives, may we make a plan to grow in godliness and do it diligently. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.